Marcus, man, what's up? Welcome to the show. Samson, great to be here. Darius, great to yep. be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, so we, um, we spent a lot of time doing research. Obviously we're big fans of yours. Um, have read your book, talk about your content and all that good stuff. But I think what's helpful for most of our audience is to just hear your story. I think for me, what connected the most was just how you came up in business, right? Like the, the beginnings weren't pretty or sexy. You didn't have some wealthy dad that was helping you. You got this hip hop background, this like gritty background that's necessary to be an entrepreneur. And then today you're an author, you know, you're, you're fund manager, um, you're a podcaster. I mean, who knows what else you got going on? Hopefully we can unpack some of that today. Jiu-Jitsu blue belt. Jiu-Jitsu blue belt, family man. Yeah. So the whole nine. So, but we'd love to go kind of way back to how you came up and then how you got to where you're at today. Yeah. Great. So, um, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York and, uh, born in 1975. Um, I was really lucky to have, you know, great parents, you know, as you said, they weren't you know, business people per se, but they were hella hardworking people, you know, and uh, being able to see hard work in action uh, is one of the, the the best things that a child can see, uh, especially when their parents are working together as a unit, you know what I mean? Um, and so I was, I was really fortunate to have a super hardworking dad who he was a corrections officer and then he retired from that field. And then he went to the post office and then retired from that. And my mom, she, she was a, um, a billing specialist at um, B Altman, which is a, uh, a department store in, in Manhattan. And then she made the move into medical billing. And when she made that move, she, uh, she started her own little outfit, uh, her own little company, little medical billing company. And the thing I remember most about that was she hired her friends. You know, she was able to create a space where her friends could be. And it was, um, you know, it was, it, it was just the idea that she could control her time. She was able to be the PTA president and always show up for all of my wrestling meets and all those kinds of things. Right. So that was what I most remembered was my mom had a job where she could hire her friends and control her time to spend as much of her time with me and in her community and at her church as possible. Um, so she really was that, that first influence for me. Um, I went to, I went to college, like you said, uh, I went to, I went to school for architecture and, it was 1993. It was a golden era of hip hop. I was way more interested in Wu-Tang, Biggie, and Nas than I was in, you know, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. So um, <laughs> I started, <laughs> uh, I, I started, you know, a record label with some friends and we went up and down the mid-Atlantic, you know, uh, doing, doing records, producing, uh, doing shows, you know, st stayed mostly regional and, uh, and ended up dropping out of school. Uh, went down to it, to Atlanta to continue the music thing. And that's when I started a family and, and everything had to immediately change. I, I didn't have a choice. You know what I mean? I was without a degree. Um, I was in a city that wasn't my hometown. I, I, I knew people, but I didn't have a deep community. I had one kid and another one on the way. And it was like, clearly I'm going to have to do something very, very different. Um, my wife at the time, she grew up in Nashville. We moved to Nashville, Tennessee. That was Labor Day 2000, uh, started waiting tables. And the the big transition for me was teaching myself how to code. 2000 was the dot-com boom. Um, watching TV, you would see kids riding skateboards and, and, uh, inside of offices, programming websites, making a hundred thousand dollars a year. And I was like, man, if they can do that, I can do that as well. So I taught myself basic web programming, got a job in April of, uh, of 2001. And that really changed, changed my life completely, you know? So it's, so it's interesting. All the, 
that that whole model of code academy and boot camps and teaching people how to code as sort of a, a you know a lever up from an economic perspective it definitely was for me and that that framework of learning coding introduced me into the technology world and that put me in an environment where i was able to learn business through osmosis through watching it and through participating in it but really at the lowest levels i was building software for other people um i got really lucky i actually had, just had coffee with them i got uh i was really lucky in 2003 through my programming career i became the fifth employee at a startup uh, startup was called Emma. It was an email marketing company at sort of the dawn of email marketing, just like for frame of reference, MailChimp didn't exist yet. So it was very, very early in that whole movement. And uh, I got to build the platform there and I got to watch the co-founders of that company, Clint Smith and Will Weaver. I got to watch them build the business um, and, and build a team and build a brand and work on the financing and work on pricing um, and work on scaling. And I was just basically right under their wing. You know, I was their, their main guy leading all the technology, but I had mentors um, that, that showed me how business is, is done, showed me how startups grow. I stayed with them for four years. We grew that business. By the time I left, we were doing, you know, about 20 million a year. Um, and then I left and I started this career that I have today, which is sort of half entrepreneurial and half um, venture capital based. Um, you know, so, so today I, I run a, a healthcare venture firm called Jumpstart Health Investors with a couple of partners. Uh, I run a fund on that platform called Jumpstart Nova. It's a $55 million fund. Our fund one invested in black founded and led healthcare companies across the country. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about the power of entrepreneurship, passionate about the power of technology. Um, clearly you guys are as well, you know, doing podcasts and, and, and with the business that you have and, and getting this message out, man, getting this message out to people that, um, you know, if you're willing to build those baseline skills, whether it be technology or, or sales or marketing or ops or finance, if you're willing to build out those skills, um, there's huge upside opportunity for, for you in this economy, especially this, this massively changing economy that we're entering right now. hundred percent, man, lots unpacked there. Um, I definitely think about entrepreneurship the same way, right? It's like, it's a game. It's like, you know, being in the NFL, right? You start out in Pop Warner and you just like work your way up to the top until you're in the big leagues. Most people just never go long enough and hard enough to make it that far. I mean, I've, we've heard countless stories on this podcast of people for their first five years, they're just kind of floundering, trying to figure it out. And then about that, you know, five year mark, it starts to make sense, right? You've seen enough things, you've gone through enough seasons of highs and lows and you know, forgot to pay your taxes and done all those dumb things that we do as entrepreneurs. I That's know you right. have a similar story of, yeah. of doing the yeah. same thing. Um, I have actually a very explicit question that came out of what you just said yeah. around college and mm -hmm. watching your mom grow up and do it. I have very specific thoughts about college today mm -hmm. and how we're raising our children, but I'm actually mm -hmm. interested to, as a father, what, what are your thoughts about the college environment today, specifically for people who are maybe more entrepreneurial? Cause I feel like whenever there's a recession or things get hard, the immediate thing is, Oh, I got to go back to school and I got to get more yeah. educated. Go right? hide out, go hide out in school. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Lay low. Um, you know, uh, man, I was just talking about this with Clint this morning. I, I, I had coffee with, with Clint. It's, it's a, uh, you know, one, one of the most special things about this, this journey is, um, you know, if, if you, if you have a great mentor and that mentor can become a great friend and, you know, your, your, your paths can sort of, you know, grow together. And then eventually you can sort of pay that person back and be able to, you know, mentor them in some capacity. Um, and we, we were having a conversation today talking about, talking about higher education. 
And, um, you know, I, I just really, I, I, I think we are at a real inflection point for, uh, a sea change in higher education. Um, you know, the world is simply changing too quickly for these higher ed universities to effectively, uh, adapt their accreditation based curriculums to adequately prepare young people for it. The only model that would, that I think would work would be come here. We will put community and resources around you. Right. And we will teach you foundational things that you absolutely have to know. Otherwise you can't play the game, but the majority of what you're doing is research and experience based. Right. Um, in, in, in that type of model, it could work. Uh, but even there where they've sort of screwed themselves is they've been gouging everybody. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the price that they, they kept, they kept ratcheting up the price, ratcheting up the price, ratcheting up the price. And that's one of those games where it's like, get it while the getting's good. But at some point, you know, everyone's going to just sort of say, is this really worth it? You know, is there really an ROI that, that justifies this? And I think you're going to see a, a big movement away from the establishment of higher education. I don't think higher education is going to go away, but I think they're going to be total alternatives to it, just as we've seen total alternatives to all these other, all these other industries. You know, education has been protected by its brand, by its prestige, and kind of really by a social contract where we've all just sort of agreed that we're going to continue to make a bachelor's degree from an accredited, uh, you know, college or university a requirement for hiring someone into an entry level, high level job, right? right. Um, entry level, high level, it's a little bit of like a, you know, oxymoron, but you know what I mean? Like a high paying <laughs> yeah. entry level job is really what right. I mean to say. Um, and more and more, that is not true, right? More and more, like, like how many educational programs does, does Google offer today? A yeah. lot, you know, like when I compare how, what it took for me to teach myself how to code in 2000, right? You know, going to the bookstore, buying books, taking the CD-ROM out the back of the book, sticking it in the gateway computer. There was no code academy. There were, you know, the only certification programs was like A+, you know, right. um, which no one even talks about anymore, you know, and that was where you, you, you learned how to build a computer, actually. Um, right. You know, here's the RAM stick. Here's the hard drive. Here's the, you know, the motherboard. Um, so it's just like the world has advanced so far from that point and the rate of change is so high that I just don't think higher education in its current format survives. And the problem is they would have to disrupt themselves. Right. And they don't really want to do that. There's too much like upside for them in, in the way that it's, it's currently operating, you know? So um, look, I mean, do I think there'll always be a place for it? Yes. But do I think it's absolutely time for there to be alternatives, uh, you know, and for it not to be sort of a one size fits all, especially for people who are entrepreneurial minded, young people that are entrepreneurial minded? Of course. Of course. I mean, you know, it wasn't the right fit for me, you know, and it's still yeah. not classroom learning is still not good for me, um, you yeah. know, but I'm a lifelong learner, <laughs> you know, um, the, the only classroom where I can learn well is is the jujitsu academy because I'm moving my body. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? But just sitting down in a classroom, like listening, it just doesn't work for me. I need to learn by doing, you know? Yeah. More, more of like an incubator style model, yeah. I think is what you alluded to. Yeah. You know, yeah. in 2020, we, 
we obviously everybody was forced to homeschool and we quickly realized that our, our girls were falling way behind. And so we ended up just committing to homeschooling. We haven't taken them out. And, you know, now my girls are grades and grades ahead of their classmates and they do school for three to four hours a day. And the rest of the time they get to do things like come to the office with me and work or build their little jewelry business and go knock doors and sell jewelry and, you know, talk about money and learn these skills that are actually the things that carry you forward in your life. And so I, I can attest to what you're saying. It's the way that you came up as an entrepreneur. It's the way that I came up as an entrepreneur, you know, being immersed in the game is probably, I don't know, hundred, hundred X, what you could ever learn in school. Um, you know, I'll take the guy who's got five years under his belt and in business versus the guy coming out with a master's degree every single time. Specifically when you were on your journey, what were the, a couple maybe big takeaways that you took away kind of being an entrepreneur inside of a fast growing mm-hmm. startup that mm-hmm. you think everybody should be kind of paying attention to those like core lessons as an entrepreneur to save them the, the, the pain so they can more quickly go to profits. Oh boy. Um, gosh, well, well, Emma was, uh, especially for Nashville, Tennessee, a city that, that at that time did not have a lot of technology companies. I mean, Emma was its own little, little rocket ship. And so, you know, I think a lot of the real hard lessons that I would prioritize, I maybe didn't learn there because, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of issues, quite frankly. I mean, they, you know, they, you know, they had issues, but it was almost always a successful company. Um, I guess what I would say is I learned how important it is to invest deeply on the front end and be relentless in establishing and protecting your culture. Mm. Um, that was one thing. I mean, I, I, I remember they like back before anyone was even talking about it, like those guys like wrote a manual called the Emma Bible. And it was like, this is the way we are as a company with ourselves and with our customers and out in the world, like even to the degree of like how we as a company show up to, you know, support our community. Right. And, and, you know, I, I gotta be honest, I took it for granted until I left there and went to try to do stuff on my own or was, you know, partnered with other people's stuff and just realizing, man, a, that is not an easy thing to do. And those guys were so committed to it, so talented in how they went about doing it. Um, and it worked, you know, it's like you put that front end effort in, it impacts your hiring process, you know, which then impacts the way that your, you know, your company actually operates and it helps resolve conflicts, you know, because it sort of defines how we are and how we show up. And so when usually conflict comes out of being out of alignment with your values, right? That's, that's, that's usually, you know, it's, it's, if it, if it's, if it's a, a debate of ideas is not really the same thing as conflict. You know what I mean? A debate, a debate of ideas is healthy. You always want to have ideas competing so that the best idea can, can rise to the top. That's not real conflict. Conflict is when there's, there's like a real underlying issue. That's, that's sort of a value-based issue and investing deeply into a manual that, you know, 
um, that that sort of establishes in black and white very clearly that everyone can reference back without having to go to mommy or daddy and say, you know, hey, this happened. You know, what do you think? It's like the manual kind of lays it out for you. So that was that was one of those uh, big lessons that I still marvel at their their ability to do that. Um, you know, I would say maybe from from other from from other businesses that I've that I've been in, uh, it's been growing growing artificially, you know, um, and, and especially like in, in, in the venture capital space, we back businesses with capital so that they can make investments on the front end, um, that ideally will result in growth. Right. And so there's always, and that is where the risk is, right? The risk is we're going to spend capital in advance of the profits, this is not growth capital, right? You know what I mean? This is, you know, to, to deliver on some invoices you already have. This is we're spending and building in advance of actually having those, those, uh, those revenues in place. And a lot of businesses never put a cap on that. Um, right. and don't know how to sort of shift out of that. And don't know how to be truly profit driven. Right. I mean, I love the name of your, your podcast path to profits. Uh, that, that is ultimately the goal of a business, right. Is to generate a profit. Um, and if you have a business that has cost centers that are too high and then you start living to serve those cost centers, which is tough because they're people, they're employees, they're your teammates, you know, uh, depending on your culture, you might refer to those people as family. Right. Um, but when 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 you prioritize or focus on that uh, in front of profits instead of profits, um, you're on a you're on a fast path to death, and that that's that's why most companies die, right? I mean, most companies die because of lack of profit. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, their their cost centers are just just too high for the revenue that they're generating. That used to be, I think, a much harder problem to solve, but in 2024 with cloud technology and, um, you know, global workforce and artificial intelligence, there are very few excuses for a company to actually die. Right. You know, other than lack of discipline. A hundred percent. Even if your revenues are really, really low, you should be able to stay in the game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and just really, really manage your costs. So. I'm interested to know, how do you guys, screen that on the front end to determine, you know, this isn't a business that's just going to be a, a sunk cost where we drop the money and it's going to blow up. It'll never be profitable. Is it the entrepreneur? Is it something about them? Is it something about the company? Is it a combination of both? Like what's the litmus test for you guys to say, I want to invest in this company. Well, that, that creates one of the trickiest things in venture. Um, especially because we've had a seed change, uh, as we've moved out of the zero interest rate regime into yeah. this new world, which is sort of the real world where capital has a cost to it. Right. Right. Um, Can you clarify a seed you know, change for those who might not know? When yeah, sure. Change, uh, it, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, 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 it just means that the world operated one way and now it fundamentally operates a different way. That's yeah. all. Um, and for the better part of 20 years, the economy operated on a principle that capital is free. So 0% yep, interest rates from, 
zero percent interest rates. That's right from the from the Federal Reserve. There were a couple of blips here and there, you know, where it raised up, and then you know we had the Great Financial Crisis, and so we had to you know we, we brought it back down. And then for most of the last ten years, um, the the Fed fund rate, which sort of is the baseline for all the other interest rates, um, yeah. all the bank interest rates, all the bond rates, et cetera. Uh, anything that where capital yields for you having access to it um, was 0%. And so what that did was it shifted all of the value creation energy towards risk on assets. When I say risk on assets, I mean companies, equities, stocks, right? Whether it be publicly traded or private, didn't matter. It's like, that's where all the value creation was. And that's why we had this massive run-up of the stock market, massive run-up of the venture capital industry, massive run-up of the private equity industry, massive run-up of real estate prices, right? These are all sort of non-capital um, assets. And so everything was was very oriented to that. And, and because the capital was free, you could use capital as a weapon to unnaturally compete in the economy. You know, like like if, if you and I have, have the same kind of market we're going after, right, and you've got a very, very high quality business with a great team, you know, it would be very, very hard for me to, on merit, compete with you and your very, very good team and great product. But one thing I could do would be to go raise a billion dollars because it's free because right. it, that billion dollars can't make money in the bond market, right. <laughs> you know. I'll go raise a billion dollars and I'll just compete with you by throwing money at everything, right? I'll, I'll buy up all the marketing. I'll buy up a bunch of talent. I'll steal your talent, right? Um, that's, a, that's an unnatural model for, for competition. And so it created this culture amongst founders, fair play to them, that incentivized them around growth as opposed to profits, Profits, you know, we, we just watched Jeff Bezos create one of the most valuable companies in the history of the world. And for the majority of the life of that company, it was not profitable. Yep. Right. So it's not, these founders are not stupid. They're taking their cues from what the world was telling them was right. But the problem is, Darius, we've now had that sea change. Okay. And so the, the majority of these founders who are out here right now, grew up and were incentivized and dreamt of building companies in the old regime, in the zero interest rate regime. Now that we're no longer in that and profits actually matter, they have to build all new muscle. Yep. They have to have a discipline that was not required of them before. You know, <laughs> yep. before it was like, how, how bold can you be? How magnanimous can you be in your fundraising capabilities? How much of a social media, you know, icon can you become? You know, and now it's like, how disciplined can you be? How, how structured can you be? How lean and fit can you be? It's, it's just a completely different muscle, completely different set of skills, completely different set of disciplines. And, and so that's a long way of me saying, when you talk about how do you evaluate the founders, I think, it's, I think it's been very difficult for our industry to do that. So what you ultimately have to do is when you make these investments, if you're leading the deal and you take a board seat, you have to be a good board member, right? You have to govern the company and you have to, you have to build a good rapport and an influential relationship with the founder, you know, who's usually the CEO. Um, and you have to be very influential. Um, that's, that's, that's really the only way when we, a lot of people don't understand, we, we don't take controlling stakes in these companies. When we invest, we're minority investors. The, it, 
In most cases, when I invest, the founder CEO owns more of the company than, than we do as it like, as it should be. Um, it's, it's too early for us to take a controlling stake. There's still way more value to be created. Um, but they have to be coachable. They have to listen, right. you know? Um, and, and so that's, that's a lot of it. And the truth is you can say whatever you want about figuring that out ahead of time. Almost the only way to know it ahead of time is if you've worked with them before. If, if you, if you never worked with them before, you will learn as you work with them. That's the, that's the truth. And you just have to sort of measure how much risk you're willing to take, um, at a time, you know, when you're, when you're making those investments. Yeah. So, oh, go ahead. So, you know, you mentioned with, as a result of the seed change, the need for entrepreneurs to be lean, disciplined, you know, I would say in a way, almost boring contrast to the sexified version of what entrepreneurs are. So my, one of my questions would be uh, in your own person, in your own life, running businesses, what's been the, either the regular habit or the, the, the structural disciplines that you've enacted to keep you on this path of finding entrepreneurial success when you're thinking about this new wave of new game of entrepreneurship. Ben Horowitz wrote a book called the hard thing about hard things. I think the very best thing about that book is the title. <laughs> like um, these are hard things, you know? I mean, when we talk about layoffs, that's, that's actually the job. That's the job. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to put it back to you for a second, but just, just to make sure we're talking about the question in the correct context. Um, the things that you do are you yeah. take care of yourself and you find courage. Yeah. Because you have to do hard things. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I would echo you know, that and, and just, I would just say that the, the game has shifted, I think to, can you self fund? Can you show product market fit? Can you have real skin in the game? Before you go, nobody's buying ideas anymore. They're buying real businesses no. that have real yeah. success. So can, and that's a, that's an easy way to signal to the market that like, Hey, we have discipline. We've done this. We've bootstrapped this. We've taken it to where it is today. It's profitable today or yep. maybe not, but we've at least shown that we're willing to put our neck on the line before we come knocking on your door for some money and some capital. Yeah. Listen, uh, capital's not free anymore. Nope. Capital has options on where it can go. Um, and that has impact on us as venture capitalists too. Um, you know, like we're, we're not, uh, we're not the only game in town anymore. And w when there are other places to, you know, here's what's really interesting. When there are other places to put your capital, your risk doesn't diminish. And so you're just fundamentally less attractive as an asset class, period. Right. That's just the truth. You know, and what does that, what does that then require? It requires you to be good. <laughs> right. I mean, when like you can you get actually a have to be good at this. Yes. When you can get a mini bond at 8% or a savings rate at five and a half, that's what you're competing against. Right. And that's a, that's what you, that's, that's what we're competing against. And people are like, why, why should I take that risk? Tell me why I should take that risk. Right. And look, the, I th I think. With the exception of crypto, um, venture capital still has the highest potential for returns, right? It still has the highest potential for returns, uh, but also you can lose it. You know what I mean? This this is a this is a risk on asset class, <laughs> and results greatly vary based on manager quality. 
fund, fund manager quality. 100%. Right? So you got to be good. That's the bottom line. You got to be good in this space. Ooh. How, many, how many companies have you guys invested in in the existing fund? Uh, we did 12 companies in, in the fund uh, that I'm, I'm currently managing and, and we're, and we're done. So that would be considered by many to be a fairly concentrated fund. Um, that's not a very diverse fund, uh, in terms of the number of companies we have in it, um, 12 companies. And we, we did that. We, we actually, when we set out to, uh, when, when we did the construction model for the fund, we actually thought we would do more like 15 to 16 deals um but what we found out was that uh the capital markets were contracting and it was going to be harder for a lot of these companies to graduate from c to series a deals um the 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 venture capital markets just totally collapsed in 2023 i mean you know the volume the number of deals done far more than half half of what was done in the in the previous year um, the sizes of the rounds cut down, the valuations really cut down, especially as you got into the later stages, you know, your, your series C's and later, I mean, those, those valuations were cut by more than 50% on, on average. Yeah. Um, so, so it, so it was just a, a tougher capital market and we had to decide to reserve, be, be more conservative in our follow on investing allocation you know, to continue to support those companies, especially the ones we believe could have a, have a great chance of making it to the next level. Um, and so instead of doing three more deals, we sort of held back that capital to be able to ensure that we could support our portfolio. All right. I got three questions for you. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And okay. um, my first question is with your, your hip hop background, being an MC, um, when's, when is the last time you freestyled or wrote a song? Uh, freestyled, I kind of do whenever I feel like it, just by myself. Yeah. Um, wrote a song, it's probably been two or three years. It's probably been two or three years. Um, I, I, I feel like Andre 2000, when he came out, you know, with his flutes album and he was like, you know, what am I going to talk about getting a colonoscopy? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, I, I feel like he, I feel like he said what I've been thinking for a long time, which is, you know, the creative energy doesn't go away and the love for hip hop doesn't go away. But, um, the, there's something physiologically and, you know, chemically in the brain that happens in that sort of, you know, adolescence, you know, young adult window of your life where music just lands differently and it has a, it has a different meaning. It has a different shape. It resonates. It creates different memories in, in that time frame um, than it does later in your life. You know, like I, I, I would be way more excited to write two books than I would be to create two right. albums today. You know what I mean? Like this is just, you know, where, where my, where my head and my heart is at. So you don't lose your creative, um, you don't lose your passion for creativity. It's just the format for sure yeah. changes. You, you know what I mean? The format for sure changes. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy for there to, you know, be a continuation of, of the art form and for new generations to take it in different places and, um, and make it relevant and special and unique for, for their generation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, second question, irrespective of genre, what are some of your favorite albums 
that you, or you say those are my all-time favorites. Like I still occasionally listen to listen today in my forties. Jay Z, the Blueprint. Um, I think it's a near perfect album. I was just listening to Renegade the other day. Actually. It's a, it's a, it's a near, you know, and, and, and honestly credit to Kanye, man, the Kanye and just blaze, man, the, the it's, it's more the production than it is Jay actually. Um, that, that album is, it's near perfectly produced. It's uh it's, it's really something else. It's really something else that, that is probably my one. No, actually Nas, Nas Illmatic would be the other one. Those, those are, those are kind of my two that I like go back to and listen to. And I'm like, it's still incredible. It's, it's still like exactly as incredible as I thought it was when I was, when I was that age and I was listening to it. A lot of other things do not hold for me in, in that, and that's in the way that those two albums happen to even some of the, the, the greatest, like, you know, 36 chambers. Um, what else I put in there? I probably put ready to die in that, in that category. When I go back and I listen, it's like, they're, they're really, 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 really dope. And I can hear what was so special about them in that time, you know, as opposed to them really having a timeless quality to them. Um, the Jay-Z blueprint and, uh, and, and Nas Illmatic for me, for me as a, as a, as a hip hop head have a, have a really crazy timeless quality to them and, and are also like, consistently good all the way through yeah yeah side note before your next question have you seen the uh, Nas Illmatic documentary that came out like recently no no I need to thanks for reminding me I need to go watch it it's so good I mean yeah I need to to watch it how those guys came up is like wow life was it's it's just it's just such a moment in time you know what I mean it just it just was such a moment in time I was listening to uh to Rick Rubin's um tetragrammaton podcast he he interviewed uh nick cave and um they were they they had a by the way that podcast is unbelievable it's so good tetragrammaton is so good um and they were they were talk, just they were just talking about music and music production and uh i just found nick cave's comments on it on on music on its timeliness on age on like how in certain eras they got sloppy with the editing uh, to to really just be reflective of these unique windows in time and and I and I don't think they're specific to music. So so for example, in technology, right? I I think 2007 was this like seminal year of technology. Um it was now for me now of course I have my own personal anecdotes for that. It was the first year I went to South by Southwest. It was before South by Southwest became South by Southwest. Twitter effectively launched at that South by Southwest, you know, it you had Zuckerberg and Vaynerchuk and all those guys sort of at that event. 2007 is when the iPhone launched. 2007 is when Amazon Web Services became like real and legitimate. So like I can look back at that year and say it's the year when the iPhone and social networking and cloud technology all came on the scene. One year, right? And that's literally the entire world we live in today is that world, is the world that that year created. You know, um, and and I look at 2023 kind of similarly, honestly, uh, I, th- I think. Uh, Gen AI. It's not the only form of AI that will that will totally change the world, but it's the one that woke us up. 
you know, it's the one that woke us up to the fact that we, we are now in the era of artificial intelligence. Mm. And now everything, now everything will go much faster because a bunch of smart people will start dedicating their lives to it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and so there, there are these just catalytic windows of time years where everything changes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it's important to recognize that. Well, you know, speaking of everything changing, I, you know, I read that one of the things your mom told you growing up is you can be anything, whatever you want it to be. Like she instilled that in you. And yep. when we talk about a world that's changing, I see from my, my seat, really a generation of young men that are somewhat hopeless um, and aren't necessarily being poured into. So one of the questions I would say is, how do we begin to inject a message of hope, opportunity, uh, realizing that the changed world is a world that has a lot of opportunity for people who would jump into it? How do we begin to inject that into young men today, but even, and even more specifically into young black men? Because the message is like, it's not that. It's like, go do whatever you want without thinking of consequence. Indulge and be dull to actually what's happening around you. Yeah, I think the answer to that is the same as it's always been, which is, you know, start with yourself. Um, so, you know, if you, if you look at this podcast that, that you all are doing, I mean, this, this is it. The, the, battle, the battleground is the phone. This is the battleground now. Right. You know what I mean? You want you, you want to you want to have the broadest influence that you could possibly have. You know, it's it's actually kind of amazing. We never had broadcast capabilities like this before. You know, if you think back to, um, you know, the. Like the 60s and the 70s, it's like, how did how did movements start? They had, to, they had to do pamphlets and 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 they had to create newspapers and then print them and get them distributed and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I remember you know, growing up and seeing the final call, for example, like, you know, in my neighborhood, and that being the first time I saw like a totally black oriented, you know, perspective on, on the world, you know, like, fully, um, but it had to had to come in the form of a newspaper, you know what I mean? Now, like, you can get to them through this, but it's a battleground, right? I mean, you know, you're, 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 you're up against everything else a lot of things yeah a lot a yeah. lot of things right and so you know it's really so then it gets back to okay how how effective are you you know how effective are you in your communication and then also like how undeniable are you as a character you know like how much larger than life are you um i i, did, I didn't like like a, a big thing for me and I, and I learned this. I didn't always know this. You know, I took Strength Finder, and this is how I figured this out. Um, a big thing for me is is significance. You know, I, I, it's very important for me to be significant in the world, right? That's a, that's a that's a big driver for me. Um, but I but I realized that it's not because I want people to uh, like revere me. It's because I want to be able to influence. You know, and it's and it's because I, at some point I recognize that that the most significant people are the people with the greatest influence. You know, but in order to be significant, you gotta do great things. You know what yeah. I mean? So again, at the end of the day, it's like people want the world outside of them to change, and they're not willing to like make themselves great and powerful people that can actually change the world. You know, 
like that's so it starts it starts with it starts with us it starts with 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 me focusing on me you focusing on you um you know and becoming that like undeniable magnanimous character that can influence somebody else you know yeah i would say the era of content too though right one of the things that music and youtubers and all that like the reason that they can influence so much as they just have captured attention. Right. And I'm with you too, like building the business to make impact and leave a legacy that lasts beyond you is where we're at. But you, you definitely can't do that. If you're playing small, or you're not committed to creating content and, and doing these things. It's just necessary for kind of where we're going. And we need more successful people like yourself, like us to step up and say, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to share it, put it out there, you know, put our, put a, put a book out, share the world with what I have and the knowledge that I have and go into those places. You know, I, I grew up similar to you, strong blue collar family. Uh, money was hard to come by. We would replace that with hard work, but I had parents who said, you can be whatever you want to be and we'll support you through it. I don't know how to help you get there, but you know, we're just going to give you the right push in the right direction so you can go do it. And so, yeah, I just commend you. Thanks for writing books. You got any other books in the hopper that are going to be coming down the pipe that we should be um, I'm, I'm, I'm really inspired to write one, but one thing I have, I think I've just gotten beaten into submission on this, uh, is, you know, a little bit of one thing at a time. And, uh, you know, I, right now, other, uh, other initiatives, principally the, the you know, the, the investing business, um, look, like I said, you have to be good at it and being good is about the amount of time and effort and energy you put into it. Right. And so. The thing I like about a book is um, if you do it correctly, it's it's fairly evergreen. You know, like my book wasn't like, here's how you, you know, grow your Facebook page following. Right. You know right. what I mean? It, it was a, it's a little bit more of a timeless book. And I think the truth is it, it, there's there's millions of people who have never even heard of it. You know, so, I you know, I could spend a lot more time getting the word out about the book and still letting that book make the impact that it has the potential to make as opposed to writing the second one. Um, but I have a very deep desire to write another book for sure. For sure. It's not, not a question. And if I can continue to knock things off my list, then I will earn the right to, you know, dedicate the kind of time it takes to put another book out. What do you think the difference is between successful entrepreneurs and those that give up, quit, or maybe never get started? I think, I think the answer was embedded in the question. Uh, you know, in, in, in martial arts, we say a black belt is a white belt who never stopped going to class. Um, <laughs> you know, like entrepreneurship is a career. And if you're, if you're truly dedicated to the career, you will get better at it. You'll get better. You'll develop your skills. And the more you develop your skills, the more competitive you will be. It's a competitive space, you know, so you don't just get to win because you're in it. Um, yep. you know, there's no participation trophy trophies in entrepreneurship. Thank God. Um, you know, your participation trophy is the, le the hard earned lessons, um, that you get that level you up and your ability to do it and make you, you know, stronger, um, every time you go back at it. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, what is, what is your endurance? You know, what's your capacity to deal with, um, hard times? Mm. That's it. You know? are you willing to stick with it? And do you believe you can be successful or not? That's it. That's it. You know, love that. All right, Marcus, man, thank you for being here. Um, yep. if you guys don't have the book, create and orchestrate, we'll put the link directly in the comments. So you guys can go straight to it. Highly recommend the book. We had I it on our, 
on our 2023 entrepreneurial MBA list. I think uh, chapter one alone will shift your paradigm on business. Yep. And we appreciate you. And until next time, maybe we can come out your way next time, come out to Nashville, put some eyes on what you got going on, collect some content and do it again. Would, would love that. Uh, my, my, my office is a studio. So if you, if you, if you guys want to come out, we'll record right from here. No problem. Let's go. All right, man. We'll take care. Have a great day. All right, gentlemen. See have a good one. Peace.